Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from safeddean.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, safeddean.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeddean.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello, welcome to another seminar of the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Today's guest is Nina Taichols, a science and diet uh, journalist and author and president of and the executive director of the Nutrition Coalition and the author of The Big Fat Surprise, an excellent book 
on diet and nutrition, which has been enormously successful. It was named uh, best book of the year by The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Mother Jones, and Library Journal, as well as a finalist for the Investigative Reporters and Editors Annual Book Award, published in 2014, I should add. Seven years on, her book continues to uh, attract a lot of attention, cause a lot of controversy, and um, uh, more importantly, of course, help a lot of people fix their health. Uh, so we're going to talk to Nina about um, what got her into this uh, business of being a contrarian on uh, nutrition and diet, and then her adventures with uh, Fiat Nutrition Science. So Nina, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you. So um, I guess we could start with uh, a little bit about your background and what got into you, what got you into the uh, nutrition business and into the idea of writing this book. Right. Well, um, I'm a journalist, and I really came to this whole field with um, no preconceptions. I was actually assigned to do a story on trans fats by Gourmet Magazine um, in the early 2000s. And I started to look into this field of dietary fat, you know, which is one of the central obsessions of our nutrition recommendations or the way we all grew up thinking, like, do I eat low fat, non-fat, good fat, bad fat? You know, what is it? What do you do about fat in your diet? And that investigation for that article, which was a pretty groundbreaking article at the time, um, it really plunged me into this world of dietary fats. One of the things that interested me most as a journalist, was that when I would call up professors to interview them, they were sort of terrified to talk about the low-fat diet. I just couldn't understand it. You know, I, my father's an engineer. We have all these rational, logical conversations about science. And then all of a sudden, I was calling up scientists at legitimate universities, and they were saying, listen, if you're going to talk about low-fat diet, and if you're, if you're going to challenge that in any way, I can't talk to you. Um, or people would hang up on me. Or one woman um, uh, named Mary Enig was telling me stories about how her work on trans fats had led to scientists heckling her at conferences and people trying to get her papers yanked from journals. And I just, I couldn't really believe that this was the world of science that I was hearing about. And it also told me that there was a really big story here. And with a little more reading... Um, I became convinced of that. And it took me about nine years to really read through thousands and thousands and thousands of nutrition papers and interview hundreds of nutrition scientists and others around the world. Um, you know, when I started, I was a vegetarian. Like I hadn't eaten red meat in 25 or so years, hadn't eaten any butter in about that amount of time. I mean, I just, I really... Did the, my research just showed me that everything I had been doing was was wrong, um, and it was a long and 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 it was a difficult journey to convince myself. I mean, that was one of the things that just took me such a long time. Yeah, I think uh, uh, one of my uh, uh, favorite observations is how a lot of the uh, critical thinkers always have an engineering background. So I'm delete, delighted to hear that your father was an engineer and it had an impact on you. I was an engineer as well. 
And it's very common that people um, from engineering will be the first to um, call bullshit on things because uh, the engineering mind makes you think uh, very systematically and um, you don't buy these things. I heard you mention Mary Ening. I, I've uh, read her work. She used to work, uh, she used to publish with the Weston Price Foundation. Right. And um, can you tell us a little bit more about her story and uh, the persecution that she kind of uh, got into? I, I'm not very familiar with, I've heard a little bit of details, but I'm more familiar with her work than her story. Yeah, I'll try to remember as much as I can. I think, you know, I was, um, I think one of the, you know, last journalists to interview her, um, she was quite old when I met her, but she had been a um, a serious molecular biologist, I believe, at um, at the University of Maryland. And she had stumbled on this question of trans fats, which people don't really even remember so much anymore because they have been now banned and they're not allowed to be part of our food supply. But she was, um, it was interesting. She had noted that the Jewish community in which she was a part, that they had much higher rates of cancer. And she also noted that they avoided dairy. They would have margarine instead of um, butter, for instance. Um, And they would do that in order to keep kosher. And so, and they had much higher rates of cancer. And she thought maybe it was what was in those vegetable oils or in those, um, that margarine, which they were eating to avoid dairy. And so she did a bunch of work that was some of the pioneering work in the late seventies on trans fats. Well, who makes those vegetable oils and that margarine? Those are the, some of the biggest companies in the world. You know, ADM, Monsanto, Cargill, Unilever. Um, she didn't realize she was going up against these huge industries. And they have, you know, it turns out that they have a trade organization and part of the work of their trade organization, as the head of that organization once told me, or a former head, um, he said, you know, it's, our work was to go around and stop people like Mary Enoch because we didn't want her to, um, to reveal this science. So they, they assigned people to heckle her at conferences. They, whenever she wrote anything, they would, um, re- they would publish a retort that was so vicious and so cruel. Um, they were sexist. They condescended to her. She really, really took an extraordinary beating for the work that she was doing, um, because she came up against industry. And that story is unfortunately has been retold and retold. I mean, throughout the, the, it's in my, the book, I sort of chart, you know, various different scientists um, who tried to research trans fats and they suffered similar consequences where they really, um, they were just heckled out of the field. So this is an interesting part of what makes nutrition science not science, which is that there is this incredible tradition of bullying that goes on, um, where scientists really have no problem rubbishing other people's work, talking about it in in very um, derogatory ways, trying to accuse people of all sorts of things, ad hominem attacks, ad hominem attacks, sorry. That is bizarrely part of the story of nutrition science. Um, and I don't, really see it in many other fields um it might be it might be present but it is i see it in economics for sure yeah go ahead yeah i see it in economics for sure i mean i um i started getting these heretic thoughts about economics when i was doing my graduate degree at columbia 
and um, it, it takes a very tough skin to be able to uh, handle the kind of uh, there, there's a there's a consensus way of dealing with heretics, which is you laugh, you snicker, you point, and uh, you call them uh, crazy. And there's all these fixed, uh, you know, uh, mental toolkit that they give them, which is, you know, oh, this guy just, oh, he's one of those weirdos who believes in this and um, guilt by association. Uh, so for instance, in economics, oh, you're into Hayek. Well, Hayek was um, into, uh, was, you know, he, he, he had a relationship with uh, Pinochet. And so somehow that discredits all of the ideas because somebody, whereas, you know, of course, on the other side, um, the, the, the mainstream ideas had uh, all kinds of relationships with some of the most brutal murderous dictators of the 20th century. And that doesn't affect anything. For instance, Keynes, in his book, he wrote praising the Nazi regime in the 1930s and saying, this is more suited for the kind of economic system that I'm uh, calling for. Um, but that doesn't uh, affect it. Whereas, you know, on the other side, they'll always come after it. And I think... Um, um, uh, we see this today as well with Bitcoin, like a lot of the economists, when they deal with Bitcoin, it, it, it's very clear that there's no honest uh, way of approaching it. You, you talk to somebody like George Selgin, it's very obvious he's not arguing from good faith. He's not trying to arrive at a way of, um, you know, how do we understand what's going on? He's just constantly trying to pick things, um, point, laugh, mock, uh, deride and uh, bring up rank, use his rank to mock others. He got two reviews published for my book that were um, essentially snarky, stupid, uh, pointing fingers and laughing uh, without making valid arguments. It's, it's extremely common. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I mean, it's, what you're talking about is that anybody who challenges conventional wisdom, I mean, there is a healthy, let's say, skepticism of, of people who are skeptic of everything. You know, you, there's a healthy... Um, I think desire to not to question everything and and not to embrace every passing fad or fact you know that might come up. But I mean, and we face this now. I mean, in like, this tension with skepticism or alternative ideas that are actually backed by a great deal of science and 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 rigorous science um, or or logical thinking. Um, so, you know, it's a questionable, which skeptics are you going to embrace and which are you not going to embrace? And it's certainly true that there's an unequal playing field for people who are on the outside. Um, it's a completely unequal playing field. There's, there's, and that's, and it's largely the kind of tactics that you're talking about. They're, you know, they're tried and true uh, communications, PR tactics that were, <laughs> many of them invented during the Nazi regime. I mean, there's just, there's just a tool, there's a, there's a bunch of tools that you use to um, to try to marginalize people who are bringing up um, contrarian, uncomfortable, contradictory kinds of ideas to yeah. what is the dogma, the, in my case, the, the nutritional medical dogma. And, you know, the reason for that, as you know, and as you, I mean, you've discussed, you know, I think in your book and, and also the book that you have coming out, which is, you know, there's there's just so much at stake. I mean, in the case of nutrition, what is at stake on the other side? You have, it's a fascinating kind of confluence of forces. There's the ones that you would automatically think of, such as, you know, big food, all the, you know, all of big food. But then there's also big pharma, pharmaceutical companies. Uh, you know, there's not a single member of the U.S. Congress that doesn't take money from big pharma. And they do not profit when people are healthy. They, they, they do just fine in, in a world where everybody's taking 
on average four or five medications a day. That's their profitable world. And then um, there are other forces that are that contribute to this kind of sclerosis around ideas that really don't have any science behind them. But you know, there's the Seventh Day Adventist Church, which has a religious belief that everybody should be um, vegan. Should be to eliminate um, all animal products from their diet. That seems crazy and bizarre, but it's also true. You have um, animal rights activism, a very well-funded movement that doesn't want people eating animal foods. They're very, not only are they well-funded, but they're very deeply networked into nutrition, um, uh, into nutrition leadership. And um, and then finally, you have I think. Um, what you experience in economics, which is just that there is, there's established ideas, there's sort of, a, there's a, a kind of professional investment uh, among a class of scientists and researchers who have invested their whole careers in certain ideas. And they really just cannot, they can't back out of that. Um, so, and then I haven't even talked about the U.S. government. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which, you know, awesome um, in this. <laughs> yeah, and of course, uh, they have an infinite money printer, which allows them to continue to override the rules of uh, um, economics and science and uh, everything by just continuing to subsidize whatever it is that um, suits their interests. And it's true, I think, in nutrition as well as in uh, in economics. So, um in, in your work, you discuss Ansel Keys as being a key person in uh, the development of the uh, modern uh, nutrition dogma. Uh, tell us a little bit more about this interesting character. Well, he was the most influential nutrition scientist, really probably of all times. Um, and he was working, started working really seriously in the 1950s. He was a pathologist from the University of Minnesota. And he um, was he had this tremendous faith in his own beliefs. He was sort of an evangelist for them. And he came into the nutrition world at the right moment in history because he was, um, in the 1950s, there was this real rising panic about what caused heart disease. I mean, heart disease had risen from being almost non-existent um, in the early 1900s, although they knew how to diagnose it and had written textbooks on it, but they could they really didn't see many cases. But it had risen to be the number one killer in America by the 1950s. And so in 1955, President Eisenhower himself has a heart attack and is out of the Oval Office for 10 days. I and mean, you can just imagine the focus of the nation on this question, what causes heart disease? for which there were a number of competing explanations. You know, people thought it was nutrition, vitamin deficiency. People thought it was um, rising amounts of auto exhaust um, due to more cars. People thought it was a type A personality where you run around screaming at everybody all day and then you um, have a heart attack. But into this vacuum of knowledge stepped Ansel Keys, who's, and it was his idea that it was saturated fat and cholesterol that caused heart disease. Saturated fat by raising the cholesterol in your blood would eventually clog your arteries um, and like hot oil down a cold stovepipe would fill them up and, and cause a heart attack. That's called the diet heart hypothesis. And uh, due to the force of his personality, um, he would argue anyone to the death, according even to his friends. Uh, he was able to convince basically the nutritional establishment to adopt his idea. And he did that most concretely by getting on the nutrition committee of the American Heart Association, which was really the only professional group giving advice about heart disease at the time. 
such that in 1961, the year after Ansel Keys joins that group, he's able to get them, whereas previously they had been saying, look, we just don't know what causes heart disease, not enough data. One year later, Ansel Keys is on that committee. There's no greater amount of data, but he's able to get them to issue the first ever statement anywhere in the world saying that the best measure of prevention against cardiovascular disease was to cut down on saturated fats and dietary cholesterol. That meant cutting down eggs, cutting down uh, red meat, dairy. Um, and those ideas, that diet heart hypothesis uh, exploded to, I mean, that grew into sort of the whole giant um, web of advice that we have ideas. Was, but that was the, the kernel of it was started with Ansel Keys and the American Heart Association. Is there truth to the uh, story I've heard on the Western Price uh, website once that uh, he used to eat a lot of um, eggs and bacon himself? And he used to say, well, that's, uh, you know, uh, nor we normal people should eat um, the industrial waste, but I, uh, I'm rich and I can eat uh, meat and eggs. Is that true, you think? You know, I don't remember the exact quote, but I will tell you that when he was quoted in... Time magazine is saying people should reduce on red meat. He was saying they needed to reduce from um, uh, down to just three nights a week to have red meat. And he was cited as enjoying, you know, classical music and candlelit dinners and that his and, a, and beautiful roasts and of, of meat. And I don't remember if it said that the the masses should then eat grains, but he was. Um, known to be against meat. And so I also have a letter from a colleague who uh, who writes about finding Ansel Keys at a conference, um, eating up rashers of bacon um, and eggs. And <laughs> so, um, you know, that kind of, I suppose, is a kind of hypocrisy that we probably would see today if we could peer into the life of more of our vegan um, leading scientists. For sure. And uh, we see the same thing in economics, you know, um, people implementing all kinds of horrific economic policies in uh, their third world dysfunctional kleptocracies. They send their own money to Switzerland, um, where there was a gold standard until recently, and where the banks are the most uh, conservative and uh, least reckless and least inflationary. So they put their own money in Switzerland, but they put your money in uh, highly inflationary, uh, uh, the, and they inflate the currency in their own countries. And um, yeah, I, it, it makes sense. I think people people are self-interested and it makes sense for them to promote those ideas, but it doesn't make sense for them to uh, harm themselves with those ideas. Yeah. It's interesting though. I don't really know if the world's elites, which have currently adopted sort of vegan diet for various different reasons, I'm not sure they're really aware of the nutritional deficits that they are or will be suffering as a result. I think there is a genuine buy-in for that sure. diet and it's, the ultimate irony is, of course, it was the diet of the peasants. The poorest people were the ones who were confined to eat grains and, and, and whatever was left over. And they, would, they were desperate for more meat. I mean, the meat is what they craved most in all of the um, records from anthropologists and, and researchers uh, looking at poor populations. So it's this strange and deeply ironic twist that now we have the world's richest people adopting the diet of, of peasants. 
Absolutely. You look at Bill Gates. I mean, he's got uh, more than $100 billion net worth, but it's very clear he doesn't get enough meat. And it's very clear he truly does believe his own bullshit when it comes to eating grains and artificial meat. I'm sure, in my mind, I'm pretty sure Bill Gates has got some secret lab where he's got a lot of scientists working on designing all of these uh, top secret cutting edge fake meats made out of all kinds of disgusting industrial stuff. And he thinks of himself as, you know, being at the forefront of it and he's eating all of this garbage um, <laughs> because he, he genuinely believes that meat is bad for you. And you, and, and you can see it by looking at him. Um, but uh, yeah, and I think, you know, you look at generally people in Davos and people who are uh, promoting all of these crazy uh, anti-meat ideas, they certainly look the part. They do. And you know that they want to be slim and look healthy. And you can see it in, in movie stars, movie stars who, you know, they're, they're paid to be beautiful <laughs> or many of them, you know, or maybe they don't think that, but I mean, they're supposed to be able to, it's, it's just that they, they clearly believe what they're doing and they are suffering ill health as a consequences consequence. And it's, um, you know, it's really a kind of tragedy. I, I don't know when people will fully wake up from this. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safeadeen.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with a nice colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Yeah, it is kind of a self-correcting problem in the long run because, um, you know, unfortunately people who uh, uh, eat like this are just not going to live very long and they're not going to reproduce a lot and they're not going to reproduce uh, healthy offspring. Uh, yeah, well, that's an interesting question, whether or not people will be able to change their thinking, even though their kids have brown teeth and are of short stature and they're very thin. I mean, to have a, is, if your kid is not obese, you feel like your kid is healthy, even if they're short and, and, and don't have any muscle on them. I mean, that is the current aesthetic. Um, and you can certainly, the thing about veganism is that it takes many years for it to show up. You can certainly reproduce in that time, even if you're, you know, producing unhealthy offspring, but it's, it's, um, it's not so immediately self-correcting as you might think. And, and I'm sure you encounter this as well, which is the, the ability to, um, 
to not respond to observations that are directly in front of your own eyes. I mean, I could tell you a thousand stories of people going to their doctors. They've lost, uh, you know, 50, 60, 100 pounds. All their blood prep markers look better. Everything, their blood pressure is down. Everything about them looks better. They stand there in front of their doctor who often, you know, is overweight and doesn't look very healthy. And the doctor says, hmm, hmm, that's very good. I'm very impressed that you've done that. But, you know, beware of that keto diet because it's going to kill you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I've had this being told to me. I've had this told to me. Everybody who's lost weight on a low carb diet has had all this concern trolling about, well, well you've got to be sure that it's not going to kill you because it's bad for your kidneys. It's bad for this. It's bad for that. And it's what's really amazing for me is that, you know, I, I used to eat very unhealthy. I used to drink about two liters of cola every day and I used to love all of the junk. And nobody was concerned about me back then. You know, nobody would tell me, oh, you'd have to watch it. Uh, it was fine. You know, and when I feed, uh, you know, everybody's feeding their kids all kinds of horrible uh, industrial waste. Nobody bats an eyelid. But when I tell people I feed my kids meat, like, oh, no, you got to be careful. Everybody's suddenly extremely concerned. And of course, it's not concern. It's that it's, uh, it, it hits at their cognitive dissonance that, you know, you can't be healthy and feeding your kids meat because then that would mean that I'm wrong. And the only way that I can kind of uh, square that reality is to, you know, put it out there that you're wrong and you're being reckless and you're endangering your child's health. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's your child. If you want to kill them, it's up to you. Um, but I would advise you to get back to a diet of industrial waste <laughs> if you want to <laughs> take care yeah. of your kids. Well, I mean, it really is. It's a, I think, you know, we're sort of in a state of tragedy right now because the this vegan diet is being seriously entertained as the global reference diet for the entire world by the, you know, it's being, it's being sort of, um, there are some, there's a summit on it at the United Nations. Um, and this global reference diet called the Eat Lancet Diet is one that they want to really to impose on the whole world if possible. Um, and that diet includes 0.5 ounces of red meat per day, which is like this much meat. I mean, it's not, it's a protein deficient diet. It's a diet that doesn't meet m many nutritional requirements for human life and healthy reproduction. Um, but it is, I mean, we're living in a kind of delusional state that is fueled by uh, many, you know, by multiple forces, um, now including multinationals that are deeply invested in the plant-based market, but all the other forces that we talked about before as well. Absolutely. Um, I'm curious a little bit, if you could tell us a little bit more about uh, Ansel Keys' work on the Mediterranean, the seven countries study, and uh, all of the myths about the Mediterranean diet. You're oh, yeah. amazing on that. So that is like a particularly fun chapter of my book that I, I do recommend for people because it's it's such a it really is a window into the world of nutrition science and why it <laughs> into the sloppiness of it and and just sort of how it comes up with ideas. So the Mediterranean diet was first sort of discovered by Ansel Keys during his work on something called the Seven Country Study. This was the biggest ever nutrition study that was at the time um, in that we started in the 19, late 1950s and concluded in 1970. It was on nearly 13,000 men, only men, that would never be done today, um, all around the world, but mainly in Europe, but also in the US and Japan. 
And he followed, um, it's called an epidemiological or observational study. So he followed these men, he measured their cholesterol levels, he tried to capture something about their diets. Um, and he had gone into this study with the preconceived sort of notion, um, which I should call a hypothesis, but he was completely convinced of it. Um, before he started his study, which was that saturated fat and cholesterol were the causes of heart disease. And so indeed, that is what he found uh, when the study came out. But part of the study involved looking at the, the islanders on Crete, um, which is in southern Greece in the, in the Mediterranean. And he looked at the diets of only about 30 to 33 men on that island. But he decided they were like his star subjects. They ate very little meat. They toiled long days in the fields. They seemed to be very healthy. They ate lots of fruits and vegetables. And um, so these became sort of the basis of these 30 to 33 men became sort of the foundation of the Mediterranean diet. And he wrote a cookbook called the Mediterranean, Eating the Mediterranean Way with his wife. And where, where he acknowledged that actually the diet of the Mediterranean cannot be, um, to, there's no one typical diet. I mean, the diet in Morocco is different than Spain, is different than Southern France. And he pointed out all the differences and how ridiculous it was to call it just one thing, but he sort of plowed on with that. And that idea was then picked up by Walter Willett, who was the head of the um, Harvard School of Public Health, who had traveled to the Mediterranean and had fallen in love with it. Remember, this is the this is, you know, the minute anybody who goes to Greece, I'm sorry, but if you go to Greece or Italy or any of those countries, the food is so delicious. So it's really easy to fall in love with um, that food, which is Ansel Keys himself had done. You know, he was in Europe post-World War II where the dollar was an almighty king. They could buy anything they wanted. The food was delicious. They were coming from Minnesota eating white bread. You know, you can only imagine the, <laughs> the pleasure of being in the Mediterranean. And so this also, this kind of swoon of the Mediterranean also happened to Walter Willett of Harvard. And he then constructed this idea of the Mediterranean diet and he made, you know, he kind of commercialized it. He made it like Mediterranean diet with a capital M that was the subject of many, many books and articles. And, um, you know, it still had this same problem that it really, there was no one precise definition. If you go to Italy or Greece, you know, they eat a lot of meat. Um, you know, meat is the mainstay of the menu and they also eat, you know, plant fruits and vegetables, but it's not a really a plant-based diet. But what I discovered was that this whole, the, the ability to transform this diet into like an international really, um, phenomenon was that they had this series of conferences all over the Mediterranean, these beautiful like sun-kissed um, spots. And they invited journalists and scientists and chefs. And they had these wonderful, like these wonderful multi-day events. And it was all funded by the food, well, principally by the European Olive Oil Council. So because they wanted to, to increase the consumption of olive oil in the United States, which they did. Um, and then it was also funded by other, you know, by produce by vegetable manufacturers, people who had sold vegetables and dairy. And so it was all this industry funded series of like beautiful, fragrant conferences. Um, and out of that came like scientific papers and, um, and this whole Mediterranean diet fad. And it's just an extraordinary story um, that that's the foundation of it. And again, it goes back to just like 30 to 33 people. And it has not been really confirmed in randomized controlled clinical trials, which I think 
probably your audience knows is the gold standard. That's the way, the kind of experiment that you need to do to show actually cause and effect. Um, there has been really only one major, though well, there've been quite a few trials in the Mediterranean diet, however you define it. But the one that is sort of the hallmark one is called Predimed, which was done in Spain, again, funded entirely by the food industry or largely by the food industry. And they seem to show that there was some cardiovascular benefit from the diet. There's never been able to show um, any bit that it helps you lose any kind of significant amount of weight. But there seemed to be some cardiovascular benefit. But um, ultimately what they found was like a 0.2% difference in absolute risk, which is a tiny reduction in risk, which they expressed as relative risk to make it seem much bigger. And and then the study was, you know, was seriously questioned um, whether it had actually been randomized and if it was actually not properly randomized and they had to reissue it. And so there's still sort of a cloud that hangs over that one single study that is supposed to show that the Mediterranean diet is efficacious in preventing any kind of chronic disease. So yeah. it's quite a story. <laughs> it absolutely is. And it's it's fascinating because um, you know, I, I, I lived in Lebanon for a very long time and there's a common saying there, which is um some people are ghee and some people are oil. And it's a way of saying, you know, some people are good, some people are bad, some people are rich, some people are poor. It can be used in different contexts to signify essentially that, you know, uh, poor people are the ones who eat the oil and cook with the oil and the rich people are the ones who cook with ghee. And, uh, you know, I, it's something that you've heard, you'd hear all your life and Lebanese people hear all their life and they all know it. But uh, they still, it's, it's, it's quite amazing. You know, people today, they still think, yeah, well, you know, our ancestors ate olive oil. And the reality is, you know, they ate olive oil as a dressing. They used it to make soap. They used it to um, make candles. Uh, they used it for their hair. They'd have it as a dressing and yeah, for the skin. But uh, when they had to cook, you know, uh, they'd cook with animal fat. And the only time you would cook with olive oil was if you couldn't have animal fat, which is, you know, if you were really poor. And that's where the saying comes from. You know, the people who have to cook with oil, they have to be really, really poor if you can't afford ghee um, or, or uh, tallow. And uh, it's, it's really fascinating about it is, Watching, you know, people in the Mediterranean today just have this Harvard idea of what their ancestors ate. And, you know, today, um, you know, people's grandparents um, were around in the 60s and 70s. So um, their diet isn't quite representative of what their grandparents ate. And we don't talk to our, you know, sixth generation uh, removed grandparents to know what they used to eat. But if you look into it, you know, the, 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 the meat was the heart of the diet and the meat is how people managed to survive and the animal fats. And um, it's, 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 it's amazing how successful this has been. Like, and, and, and you see this also in just how much people are scared of fat. It's amazing. I mean, you know, you travel all over the world. I'll go to the most obscure little place anywhere and people will always look at you weird. It doesn't matter, you know, it could be the richest place in the world, it could be the poorest place in the world. Everybody's, no, are you sure this is okay that you're eating meat? Yes, I'm sure. Humans have been eating it for 3 million years. Are you sure it's okay that you're drinking all of this uh, sugary sludge that your grandparents wouldn't have recognized if they'd seen, well, your great-grandparents maybe? And, you know, the cognitive dissonance is just, uh, it, it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's... Um, when you're in school, you're in grade school, there's, you know, they, they teach you this lesson, like you, you must 
study history so that you're not bound to repeat it. And yet, when you talk about how you, know, you don't know what your great great grandparents ate anymore, right? We just don't know what we don't know. We have lost all of our old recipes, our old traditions. We're shocked to find an old cookbook and, and find that it's full of you know recipes for how to use various kinds of organ meats like we've never heard of. That would be unimaginable to us, but it's only a couple of generations ago, or I should say it only takes a couple of generations to forget. Yeah. In I don't think in, in Italy or Greece that they're aware, as you said, olive oil was not even used as a foodstuff until the 19th, the, the mid to the late 1900s. Sorry, the mid to the late 19th century. Um, it had no use for as a food item. It was only, it was mainly to anoint the body of the, you know, of the ancient Greeks. So we just, you know, we forget at our peril. People do not remember. And it really doesn't take long to, um, for people to forget that, you know, did, where does margarine even come from? You know, where it's, it, you know, it's factory produced and it goes through multiple steps involving a metal chelate and it has to be deodorized and winterized and degummified and, it's, it's an actually disgusting product to see. And it's disgusting. I went into a vegetable oil factory to see how vegetable oils are made. I mean, it really is not appealing to see the kind of the gray sludgy product that comes out of pressing soybeans and then how that has to be deodorized, winterized and all these things in order to make it seem like something that might be palatable. Yeah. In order to basically make it kill you slowly rather than just kill you quickly. <laughs> yeah. But it was cheaper. I mean, all of these things were cheaper. So again, it's this irony that we've embraced. We've been told something is healthy that is an industrial product, that is a cheaper product. Um, we've been we've been sort of brainwashed to think that that is healthier than uh, what uh, what our healthy forefathers used to eat. Yeah, and it only takes a couple of weeks for you to just you know try to stop this stuff for a couple of weeks, eat animal fats for a couple of weeks, and just you'll notice the difference immediately. But people are so addicted and so brainwashed by it that they refuse to even try it. Well, of course, that's part of a, you know, a campaign, a very, very successful communications campaign to scare people away from you know, a low-carbohydrate, higher animal protein, animal fat diet. That's been just a relentless communications campaign. Yeah. Um, and, and now we have sort of global warming that you're considered to be, um, a, you know, a denialist, global warming denialist if you eat meat, um, which is, I think, a brilliant tactic on somebody's part because, you know, those arguments also don't really pan out very well. Um, of course. You know, you can, you should take one less airline flight or own one less, car or house or something or, you know, or in order to, because all those things you can do without damaging your health. I mean, versus giving up meat, which is, you know, is a health risk. Yeah. And we've had uh, Patrick Moore, who was one of the co-founders of Greenpeace on a couple of weeks ago to discuss the science behind climate. And, um, um, you know, you may agree or disagree, but I think there's a very strong case to be made that it's as rigorous. It's, it's probably much less rigorous than the science behind the Mediterranean diet and the low fat diets. Um, you know, there's, there's very little evidence that um, all the carbon that we've been emitting has caused um, any damage to the world. 
And then when you think about just the need that we have for emitting those things, you know, we, 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 we emit carbon dioxide when we breathe. The idea that we're going to go get to a zero a carbon dioxide world is only possible if we just genocide all of humanity. Well, you know, I don't, I don't, can't enter into the into the debate about climate science, but I will say that you know one of the the very influential ideas that um, really began this this notion that we should give up meat began in the 1970s with this idea that you know if you, a pound of meat was much more expensive in terms of all the inputs than a pound of plants, so why should we not just? This was the idea of Francis Moore LePay and her called the diet for a small planet. Um, when there were all these, you know, the original concerns about overpopulation and how we're going to feed everybody and what will we do with our burgeoning population, and really, I mean, and you know, if you if you believe that a pound of meat and a pound of plants deliver the same nutrition, that is a viable argument. But when you start to realize that a pound of plants, not only is that nutritionally poor, right? They don't have what does meat have? Iron. Um, selenium, zinc, um, folate, you know, all these, and, and a perfect protein, a perfect complete protein for uh, that your body can use to function, make muscle, um, maintain muscle. Plants have none of that. And plant comes with these anti-nutrients that are, many people have, um, that create immune responses. I mean, the one that we all know is gluten, but there are, there are quite a few others that plants contain because the whole strategy of a plant to avoid being eaten, um, it can't run away the way an animal can. So it has to develop poisons inside, um, inside of various plant foods that really people that can be toxic um, and are toxic to, pe- to, to many people. So, and this, this pound of plants is all carbohydrates. So you're also talking about um, foodstuffs that will provoke and drive metabolic disease. So these are not at all equal. I mean, if this equals health, if the meat equals health, and this comes, you know, if the externalities that you want to include are chronic disease, and if you just count chronic disease, this becomes much less valuable um, than, than this on the, on, in terms of just, you know, all of our you'd have to care you'd have to include the entire healthcare system on that calculation yeah and in, in in the fiat standard i uh, in my next book the fiat standard i i i argue that i think a lot of that uh, was driven by the fact that um, prices were going up you know the the reason that this kind of uh, apocalyptic vision of um, we are consuming too much it, it was driven by the fact that people were seeing prices rise so much and, you know, government economists weren't going to tell you, yeah, you know, prices are rising because we're printing money to fight all these wars and to finance all of our cronies. They're not going to say that, you know, prices are rising because Earth is angry at us and because we are abusing Earth by eating meat and because meat is bad and uh, Gaia is going to take avenge, take revenge at us. And the answer is to stop consuming and the answer is to have less and the answer is to, you know, make do with the cheap stuff that Earl Butts and the Department of Agriculture had been heavily subsidizing because, uh, you know, if you get people to stop eating a lot of meat and they start eating more of the industrial stuff that's very easy to scale and has very um, little responsiveness to inflation because it can be uh, produced, you know, the more you produce of it, the lower the price becomes because it uh, has economies of scale. Um, You can hide the inflation quite effectively. And so, I don't think it's a coincidence that all of these crazy dietary guidelines of the 1970s came after the inflation. In fact, there's a story 
mentioned in a book called The Great Inflation by um, Robert Samuelson, in which uh, the price of eggs had gone up and uh, President Nixon got on, uh, on the phone with the Surgeon General and told him, tell people to stop eating eggs. And apparently that's where all the insane criminal hysteria about eggs causing um, cholesterol and heart disease and all that stuff comes from. And just think about how much of that is uh, due to the inflation. And that's really the, the, the fascinating connection that I find here. That's super interesting. I mean, I mean, I, I know that the egg story has another, is its own history goes back to Ansel Keys as well. But I think that it's very interesting. If you believe, I mean, it's not necessarily a terrible idea to feed people more grains. If you believe that grains, if you don't understand nutrition, if you don't understand that, you know, not all, it's not just about providing a certain number of calories a day, which is what people think. But you have it's and, and so if you provide that a number of calories, maybe it's okay if it's all soy and sorghum and wheat and you know rice. Maybe that would be okay. But if you understand nutrition and you understand the needs of the human body, and you understand that we need all these nutrients and minerals to survive and to reproduce healthfully, that doesn't work at all. That system doesn't make any sense. A calorie is not a calorie. Different calories deliver different nutrients nutrients. And I think one of the best ideas that I know in nutrition in terms of fixing one's own personal health is to eat for nutrients, eat for protein yeah. and eat for nutrients. Go for the foods that give you the most nutrition and understand that artificially fortified foods, like they put iron in grain. <laughs> so you can have like Captain Crunch and it has your iron. And that's why the, that's why the government still has to um, recommend refined grains because those are the ones that are enriched and fortified. But many people cannot absorb nutrients either from tablets, pills, or from the food that they're eating it in. And they think they're getting it from the fortifi fortified foods. But many people can't absorb that. They can't absorb it from pills. Your best way to get those nutrients in your body is to get them through foods. And, and if you specifically meet that principle, that will deliver a completely nutritious and healthy diet. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, you, you can't really expect politicians who are looking to get reelected to get into uh, thinking about how do we feed people for the sake of, you know, the health of their children 20 years from now. How do we feed people so that we get reelected re two years from now? That's the concern. Okay. And if you, you know, if you manage to, con to to convince them that the best food that they should be eating is the cheap stuff, that's going to make the inflation problem look much uh, less of a problem right. when you and get I'll, into it. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and I'll tell you, there's a very simple structural problem why we cannot have good dietary guidelines. Um, maybe I should explain what dietary guidelines are and why yes, they're influential, if you'd like. So this the nonprofit that I work on is called the Nutrition Coalition, which I founded. And it's because they're, the whole idea is that we need dietary guidelines that are based, evidence-based or based in a rigorous scientific process, which they're not currently. Um, and, you know, why should we care about the dietary guidelines, which is a really good question because nobody, even most people don't even know about them, but they, you know, you don't know about them, but they know about you. I mean, they reach out um, to, I mean, not only are they followed by most nations around the world in case people are calling in from other nations, um, but they're, they're considered sort of the gold standard. Um, but, you know, they reach, uh, they reach out into every sector of society. They're they're taught by doctors and dietitians, and pretty much all healthcare workers have to follow the guidelines. So you, when you go to your doctor to get a 
advice about diet, diet, it comes from the dietary guidelines. They influence all institutional food in hospitals and cafeterias. They are school lunches, feeding programs for the elderly, the military's food. We have a huge obesity problem in our military. So they're just incredibly influential. They, they exert a kind of vice-like control over our food system and our food choices um, in, in institutional settings. So they're vastly influential. Um, and they are, they are not reactive to good science. Um, so ours is really the only group in the world that is trying to ensure or trying to raise awareness of these guidelines um, and what's wrong with them. And one of the basic structural problems that we have um, is that the people who are responsible for the food policy is, is our Department of Agriculture. They have no relationship with, uh, you know, in Congress, the people who worry about the, the, who oversee the Department of Agriculture have no relationship with the people who worry about the budget for healthcare. So there's no connection there. So if you fix the dietary guidelines, you have no incentive to fix the dietary guidelines because because you're a member of Congress, you're either in this job over here or in the job, that job over there, but there's no connection between those two. When, when did the, you have no incentive to reduce healthcare costs in this country, which are bankrupting us. I mean, diabetes alone is bankrupting our country. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you saw this with the coronavirus hysteria where, um, you know, it was considered okay to lock people up at home and muzzle them and um, try experimental gene therapy. All of that was just considered common sense. And if you opposed it, you got uh, called a heretic and you got abused by all the world's idiots. Whereas, you know, simply telling people to maybe, you know, stop eating industrial waste and start eating uh, healthy food that will make you um, not less susceptible to the damage from it. Because the biggest uh, confounding, uh, well, the, the, the biggest comorbidity, the biggest cause of negative outcomes for getting the coronavirus, the difference between having a bad flu and uh, having serious damage for life or dying is almost entirely about obesity and diabetes and all of these metabolic diseases. Right. And yet, there's absolutely nobody in all of the fiat authorities, uh, all the fiat... Yes, I, I think I was, um, yes, I mean, I reviewed all the research and wrote an article on this, said that the, 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 close, the best predictor for poor outcomes from COVID after age, you know, being old was, was probably the greatest predictor of, of, of poor outcomes. The second greatest one was your blood sugar, chronic high blood sugar, which is found in people with obesity and diabetes and other chronic diseases. That's why they're all linked together by that common feature, which is that you have excessively chronically high blood sugar from eating chronically um, too many carbohydrates. So I think I was the only person <laughs> that I know. I, I, I wrote up that a piece and it was published in the Wall Street Journal as an op-ed. Op and usually when you write an op-ed, you know, there's, there's, you get picked up by a radio show or a TV interview or somebody's interested in that point of view. And I got like zero interest in that idea. And I really yeah. could, it was almost unimaginable to me that, you know, in the New York Times or your leading newspapers, they were advertising, you know, it's fine to binge eat. And here's our extra large size brownies. And here's my story of eating through a huge entire bag of tortilla chips. And it's fine because it's emotionally, if that's what we need at this time. You know, what you need emotionally is to not die from COVID. What you need is to be as, as immune, you know, as healthy as you possibly can be. Um, yeah. It's, this, just, the it's, it's amazing. And I'm sorry to mention this one other thing, but you know, no, you don't hear anywhere 
politicians talking about obesity and diabetes at all. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and this is one of the things that really infuriates me. Like it's, you, as you were saying earlier, that the, there's definitely no, um, the, there's no genuine, honest attempt to actually make an argument. There's just an endless list of preconditioned uh, responses where, all right, the science says this stuff is good. The science says you're based on a study done by a guy who was discredited. And the and then the, one of the ones that really, really gets me is this one, which is, you know, well, you're being really cruel on people. You know, they're going through an epidemic and they're locked up at home. They're sacrificing so much. They deserve their tortillas. It's, it's amazing. And it's, it's so common and it's so, and it's always being um, uh, levied at people who talk about healthy eating as if, you know, trying to tell people to stay healthy and fix their mental issues, you know, all the psychological problems of bad eating that, uh, it, you know, fixing all of the psychological problems that come with bad eating would go an enormous way in helping people uh, deal with all of those things. But somehow all of that is considered uh, bad because there's just no money in it. I've, uh, you know, I, I've been pretty outspoken on my Twitter. I don't have a forum where I can publish about health, um, but I've been pretty outspoken about all of this stuff for since since January. Really, I remember my first tweet about COVID was in uh, January 31st, 2021, and my tweet was, you know, these people, the, the the people that are telling you to worry, and the people that are being hysterical about it, are the World Health Organization, and these are the same people who tell you to eat vegetable oil, and these are the same people who tell you you need to eat grains, and that you need to reduce your meat consumption, and that you, uh, you know, they're sponsored by all of these industrial manufacturing foods. I'm inclined to just not listen to what they're saying because if I were to listen to what they're saying. I'd be diabetic today. I, I I used to be overweight. I used to be probably pre-diabetic, and I, you know, I, at this point, I'd be living, I'd be debilitated um, because I I went low carb about twelve years ago, and it completely changed my life. I'm healthier right now, and I'd be completely debilitated, and I wouldn't be able to to take care of my family. I think, given the trajectory of my health, given how bad I used to eat before I fixed things, and so. Uh, I, I, that made me skeptical of all the things that they uh, promote. And it's, it's you know, the, you don't even need to look into the details of the crazy things that they promote. It, it's obvious that it, they're um, full of shit because if they weren't full of shit, you know, they'd be out there telling people to fix their food, but they don't. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you, here's a, you know, here's some, uh, some hard facts story on that. I just want to go back and say one thing, which is that. Sure. I don't want to discount how hard it is to give up junk food and to say that like, oh, it's easy. Like there's no such thing as emotional eating that that isn't real or that isn't really difficult to overcome. Um, sugar addiction is real. All of that is real. And I, I have you know, enormous sympathy for how hard it is to, to change one's diet. But I think at the same time, it is the responsibility of our public health officials and those you know, who are leaders in the media to say this is worthwhile because your very life may depend upon it. Um, and you can dramatically improve your, just in case we have another round of COVID, you can dramatically improve your blood sugar and all of your cardiovascular risk factors without necessarily losing weight. Those studies have been done. Those clinical trials have been done showing you, you experience tremendous benefits, even if you do not immediately see weight loss. So that's important to know. But to give you a really graphic example of just how corrupt, I would, I guess I have to say, um, you know, our systems are 
and we did um, an analysis of the U.S. Dietary Guideline Advisory Committee. This is an expert committee appointed by the government, um, 15 members. They're supposed to review all the science to tell us, you know, what we need to eat to be healthy. Well, in general, the National Academies of Sciences says that in order to, you know, if you're going to issue guidelines, then no more than less than half of the committee should have any kind of conflict of interest, you know, financial being the primary one. Um, but uh, the U.S. Dietary Guideline Committee that that oversaw the guidelines that just came out at the end of last year, 95, almost all of them, 95% of them, or all but one, had really serious, long-standing conflicts of interest with the food industry, with the pharmaceutical industry. Um, they had multiple connections going back for years with many, many different companies. And, you know, you have to be very naive to think that they don't bring that, even if they believe they're doing their best, they have been so influenced and kind of marinated in an industry way of thinking um, that those views are bound to um, convert onto, you know, into their advice, into their scientific report. And then at the level above that, you have the fact that the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and this, I know this is also true of the WHO, you know, you have these companies they are, you know, they're, they're, they have, they have partnership, the whole idea of public-private partnerships with these public institutions so that, you know, our Department of Agriculture is partnering with Domino's Pizza and is partnering with Unilever. And is, you know, what does that partnership do for, you know, what is... <laughs> well, one of the things that it does is that pizza is considered a vegetable in schools, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's actually, pizza is perfectly healthy by the government standards. You know, if you're supposed to have six servings of grain a day, so there's your grains, and you've got tomato, which is a vegetable. I mean, actually, it's a fruit, but anyway. And, but that's healthy. So, you know, and cheese is dairy. So, I mean, that's, you know, nutritionists always go around saying it's a fault of Americans because they eat too much pizza and sandwiches, but let's review all of that is completely considered healthy and covered by the U.S. Dietary Guidelines. <laughs> Those are health foods. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, uh, these people will have all these blatant conflicts of interest and they'll spend 20 years making millions of dollars from these companies. Nobody mentions it. And then somebody who's talking about low carb, somebody like you, or, you know, many of the uh, fitness coaches on Twitter and Instagram, they will sell a supplement or will sell something that, you know, the, the, um, on their Twitter, and then they get completely bashed for it by the media right. because those or, people are profiting from it. Yeah. And I will say, or like, I, I want to be very clear, like, I don't take any money from industry and my group takes no money from industry of any kind. But there's, um, there is, a you know, professor at NYU who has a whole whisper campaign against me that I, that I get funding from the meat industry. And that's, that's printed up in, you know, in a, a journal article on me. Um, so yeah, not only, I mean, if I were actually to be <laughs> involved with the meat industry, that would, I'm sure attract even more press. But as we said earlier, it's just an, un, there's, there's a tradition of bullying in the field. And one of the yeah. tactics is to accuse people of being financially motivated. And actually that goes back to Ansel Keys, who would accuse all of his competitors. For instance, there was a professor at the Imperial College in London who it was his idea in the 1970s that, that it was sugar that was driving. Uh, John Yutkin, right? Yeah, John Yutkin. So Ansel Keys, noting that this is a competitor to his hypothesis, 
uh, he attacks John Yukin. And one of the things that he attacks him for is he says he accuses him of being in the pocket of various unnamed financial uh, industry and unnamed industries. And he went after him using all these tactics. And he used the same tactics against an esteemed professor at Texas A&M who was challenging his hypothesis. And so this is sort of, this comes from the very origins of the field. Um, and now these tactics are used, I mean, viciously um, and principally by, by uh, the Harvard um, School of Public Health. They're, they're sort of deeply engaged, engaged in quite a bit of, of um, this kind of, these kind of bullying attacks. One of them was that they tried, similarly to Mary Enoch, there were papers that were published in the Annals of Internal Medicine that was the most comprehensive and rigorous review ever done on the subject of red meat and um, and cancer and cardiovascular outcomes and me- other metabolic outcomes that would cover diabetes. There were a number of Harvard professors and others who all signed a letter and, and, and flooded the inbox of the editor-in-chief of that journal asking for um, a pre-public, uh, sorry, a, yeah, pre-publication retraction of the paper. I mean, don't even publish it because it will be so damaging and so confuse people. And it will, it, it, it just, it can't even, people should not even see it. Yeah. I'll, I just want to comment on something you said earlier, which is that uh, it's hard to break uh, the addiction to uh, junk food. I know it is hard, but you know, the hardest part of it is the fact that the authorities that you would look to in order to guide you in the right direction, you know, the, the ones that would put you in the direction where you could start thinking about exercising your willpower in that direction, they're putting you in, the, they're turning you on to the exact opposite direction. You know, the, your, the, your doctor tells you to stop eating meat and reduce it, your newspaper, your, all of those things, all of these authorities are constantly moving people toward the direction of making things worse for them. And right. then, and, 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 and rationalizing the addiction and justifying it and indulging it and thinking about it as if it's, uh, as, as, as if it's just normal and healthy, you know, treat yourself. And it's, it's amazing. Like, I think in, in my mind, I think if we didn't have an entirely corrupt medical system, I think, you know, a doctor would be somebody you would take your kid to whenever you started thinking that your kid is having a problem with eating too much junk food. You go to the doctor, you should take your 14-year-old kid. The doctor sits there in a very somber voice, in a very terrifying voice, and shows you pictures of people who had their legs amputated because of diabetes and shows you what it means to get diabetes and starts scaring the little kid and making it clear to him, you know, every time you're eating these tortillas, every time you're eating this junk, you're choosing to not be fit enough to join your friends on their soccer team. You're choosing to not be attractive to the other gender. You're choosing to get diabetes by your 20s or 30s. You're choosing to do all those things. What doctor does that? It's almost impossible to find doctors who do that. Right. And then, right. Well, remember that they're getting their advice. Um, the doctors are informed by the dietary guidelines. So many well-meaning doctors really do not know that when they're telling people to eat more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and and, and nuts and seeds and reduce their meat and, and eat low-fat dairy, they're, they're delivering the guidelines. And many doctors believe that that is correct. So they're not all bad, but you know, we live in a culture where the, um, the messages of industry have been so broadly disseminated. So in, in our schools, children are rewarded with candy and let's have a, let's have a fun 
challenge and, and see how many gumballs are in this jar and then we'll eat them all. And then, you know, every birthday party anybody goes to, one of the more damaging messages that comes from industry is the idea of all foods in moderation. You can yeah. eat anything in moderation. Well, um, that may be true for some people, but for many people, there is no such thing as a moderate amount of ice cream. There's just a pint. <laughs> and there's no, and, and it's very hard to do moderation when the foods have been designed over decades to be massively <laughs> addictive. One cookie, it's very hard for people. So, and actually, um, there's, uh, you know, there, there, these foods are meant to be addictive. And and if you really have a metabolic disease like diabetes, heart disease, obesity, you really cannot be eating a moderate amount of sugar. But you just can't. That's not something that you can do anymore because you, you're, you've tipped over into metabolic ill health. But that idea of moderation is an industry message that we have just absorbed. Um, yeah. It it's, one of, it's, it's one of the many zombie talking points that they hit you with. Okay, well, okay, fine. Maybe this is bad for you. But, you know, don't be such a party pooper. Don't uh, ruin the kid's childhood. Let kids be kids. No, <laughs> kids... You know, the childhood doesn't mean indulging in poison. The, 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 this notion that the, the indulging kids' addiction is uh, loving them is just absolutely destructive. And yet it's promoted everywhere in Hollywood, in movies, in TV, in newspapers, and worst of all, of course, in uh, bullshit nutrition science, where, you know, it's it, it, instead of the, being the job of the scientist to tell people what the reality is and what the truth is, the job of the scientist is to uh, tell people to indulge themselves. <laughs> right. Just think about all the, or the Krispy Kreme rollout for getting your, um, your COVID vaccine. And, yeah. you know, and there I, I remember seeing a tweet by one of the women, again, these trusted experts, they're supposed to be our trusted experts. Instead, they're, they're funded by food and pharma companies. And, and she's got a box of Krispy Kreme donuts. This is from the Dietary Guideline Committee. Yeah. Saying, you know, have some Krispy Kremes. I'm wondering, does she, is she also funded by Krispy Kreme? Yeah, this, uh, the Krispy Kreme have done a great job of funding nutritionists. There's a lot of nutritionists who show up on Twitter talking about, you know, you should treat yourself to Krispy Kreme. Yeah, this one in moderation. How could anybody be against it? You're such a naysayer. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, I wanted to get to the American Heart Association. Tell us about them. <laughs> Well, um, because heart disease was rare, remember, uh, in the early 1900s, there were no cardiologists. Um, really, there were none until sort of the 19-teens, you start to see more of them. And then um, and then by the 20s, there's sort of this little tiny office that is the, of cardiologists, this little sort of group that comes together and they say, let's be the American Heart Association. But they have no money. They almost have no office. They have no power in the world. Um, and and they they don't know what causes heart disease. Well, in 1948, of course, this is research that I dug up from the, in the process of writing my book. They are um, they're tagged by Procter and Gamble, makers of Crisco oil, um, which, which later the American Heart Association remember would come to recommend over uh, over your saturated fats like butter. In 1948, they approached this this small, tiny American Heart Association just starting out. And they said that we'll make you the designee of this huge radio contest um, that was called the Walking Man Contest at the time. And so overnight, according to the company's official history that they themselves wrote, the American Heart Association says we received a giant check 
for millions of dollars from Procter and Gamble. Um, and the money just flew into our coffers. And then overnight they became, uh, the, just a giant with offices all over the country. They are, they are still, I believe the largest nonprofit in America. They're huge. They're just a giant and they have had a close relationship with Procter and Gamble that still funds them. And remember, so this is in 1948 and 1961, they're saying you need to have vegetable oils instead of saturated fat. So, you know, no one can say that their launch by Procter and Gamble was uh, influenced that decision, but they have um, at least a third of their funding comes from from the food and drug manufacturers. And, and that's been uh, yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, their story is really sort of incredible. But that they have you know they they're a trusted, a highly trusted organization. They had very close relationships with. Um, all the White Houses, really, they was always had their annual um, fundraiser was held at the White House for many, um, many, many years. And, and they they hold a position of tremendous trust with the public. And so they're not going to, it creates tremendous, it creates real dissonance and difficulties for them to change their basic, basic tenets of their advice. Um, and to be seen as flip-flopping on the public. That said, they did actually change their recommendations to say that, you know, we do no longer believe in a low-fat diet so much. So you can have, you can have more vegetable oils is what that means to them. <laughs> but um, they've sort of backed off the idea of a low-fat diet. Um, but, you but know, they still, yeah. they still warn you against cholesterol and meat. Right. They still, you know, you still have to have low fat dairy because of the saturated fats. So they're still against saturated fats. You have, still have to have low fat dairy and you still shouldn't be eating red meat for those reasons. You should have poultry instead. I mean, their basic advice has changed very little. I think that they, they used to say you should snack on things like gumdrops and hard candy because anything was better than fat. Like fat was the worst. Um, so you should have pretzels and gumdrops. I actually haven't American Heart Association brochure saying that this is what you should eat for your snacks. So they backed away from that, understanding that sugar is, is probably bad for health. They have backed off that. But it creates this really small um, basket of foods that they can actually recommend. Um, you know, you can you can have fish. Fish is unaffordable or unaccessible for most people, in, in at least in, in the United States. And, um, and you can eat, you know, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, but it's hard for them because they need, there are not that many processed foods that sort of really they can, they can promote. And what kind of foods do they promote? What are the things that they but like? You so still get, you know, you can still, um, you know, a health food is still like a cereal. Any of those box cereals are, are because they're, you know, they're grains, which is fine as long as they're not sweetened. Um, the U.S. Tarts. promotes what? Pop-Tarts? Yeah, I don't think they promote Pop-Tarts anymore. They used to promote things <laughs> like that um, when they were promoting a lot of sugar. But they don't do that anymore. But our U.S. government will um, has sugary cereals as part of you know the food that it gives away to women and infant children. And, um, and, I, and I think that, you know, now we're allowed by the American Heart Association one egg a day, maybe. <laughs> um, but they are, you know, they're still really vociferously against saturated fats. And I think another thing to note about them as, a, as an organization is that they oversaw and did some of the most important trials, clinical trials on saturated fats. 
And those trials were all done in the 1960s and 70s, altogether on more than um, 69,000, 70,000 people. I mean, a huge number of people were tested in randomized controlled trials trying to show that eating more saturated fat and cholesterol cause heart disease, trying to test Ansel Keys' hypothesis. And none of those trials showed that the people eating more saturated fats up to like 20% of your calories of saturated fats, none of those people um, died of higher rates from cardiovascular disease or any disease. So total mortality or cardiovascular mortality. And in most cases, they did not have more heart attacks. And it's a little bit harder to measure that. And the American Heart Association, over, you know, many of their people are participating in these studies. They see the study results coming out and, and they do nothing to respond to that data. Doesn't change. And, and, and many of those studies, you know, some of them, these are amazing stories that I, you know, described in my book. Some of the studies weren't published. Some lay languishing in basements. Um, some, you know, they, the, some of them were, they became what's called silent studies where they're just never cited or never quoted. It's just, they, they just sort of, the entire community of nutrition scientists just agrees, like, we don't know what to do with these results. They don't agree with our preconceived notions. So we're just going to kind of say nothing about them. One of my favorite tricks that they pull is to call these results paradox. You know, well, we have our theory, and our theory is obviously correct, uh, but this thing completely flies in the face of our theory and falsifies it. So we're not just going to reconsider whether we are wrong. We're just going to call it a paradox, and right. then we're going to write more papers about you know the French paradox and this and that paradox, right. and it's all over in economics. There's many examples like this. Um, where it's not a paradox. There is no paradox there. It's just you're getting the truth and you should just right. accept right. it. But what's amazing is there's no corrective mechanism in the scientific process anymore. There's no, you know, no matter how many studies the American Heart Association comes up with that falsify their own assumptions, there's just no mechanism for them to back down and announce something like, well, Maybe this should, uh, maybe we're wrong. Why do you think that is the case? I mean, I have my answers, obviously, but I'm curious about your experience of why can't scientists change their mind? It's been 60 years and they're still promoting the same thing at the AHA and all these other uh, places. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's many of the things that we've already talked about, which is that there are many large commercial interests um, that fund these scientists. There's, um, and then there's all these other interests we also talked about that are in influencing nutrition science, um, like with Seventh-day Adventist Church and the animal rights books and all of this. But I think, you know, for the scientists themselves, and I've spoken to many, many people in the field, there is, um, well, for one, there are people who just, you know, when I talk about these silent studies, they, um, people today don't know about them. Um, so they really don't know the history of their own field. They, the, what they've read in textbooks and what they've kind of, when they came up and got their PhDs, they just, n nobody talked about any of this. And nobody knows it. So it's been journalists like myself um, or Gary Taubes or other journalists who've written about this. And actually sort of, we are the ones to, to write these histories. Um, and, and nutrition scientists, they don't know this. The ones, and the ones that who do, are very afraid to speak up because you have a system where your all of your research funding is controlled by the or most of it is controlled by the the government. And the government is invested in this diet, right? It's invested in it um, not only because the NIH National Institutes of Health they really signed on and bought diet the diet hard hypothesis going back to the 1948. Um, 
They were very much invested in this hypothesis, but also they, if their program is the dietary guidelines, if the dietary guidelines are wrong, if they're making people you know, sick and not healthy, or if they're not just merely not doing the job of preventing disease, then they're culpable or liable. I mean, they have a lot at stake. And so if you're a nutrition scientist, you cannot really start veering away from sort of the established medical nutritional dogma because you risk losing, um, being expelled from the community, being unable to get research funding and being expelled professionally. So, you know, I've talked to many of the people who were expelled and, and I write about them, um, who, you know, you're no longer invited to professional conferences. You no longer get an invitation to speak. You're no longer considered sort of a collegial person. There's something that's sort of questionable about you. So, you know, you, you risk just being excluded from your own field and being unable to do the science that you're trained for. That's also why you see in the field, the people doing the cutting edge science now on carbohydrate restriction, on vegetable oils, they come not from the field of nutrition. They come from other fields who have made their, you know, have made their way to nutrition through something else like exercise physiology or some other field. But it's very, very rare to find nutrition scientists who are um, not only aware of the problem, but are willing to write papers that slightly push against. Yeah. Um, I mean, one I of, know all of them. <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite genres of Twitter is the gym bros and uh, the personal trainers and uh, the Instagram influencers who, you know, their business is much closer to the scientific process because they try things out and they see what works and they try it on their clients and they tweet about it and they post the before and after picture. That's what science is. And one of my favorite genres of Twitter is when those people, um, you know, post their results and their recommendations and they're obviously getting results and people are paying them money. And then you get these fat nutrition scientists come and start mocking them and telling them, no, 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 you know, you look great. And you, yes, you've cured people from diabetes with this, but that's not scientific. And you're going to ruin their kidneys with the low carb. You should listen to the science and start looking more like me, overweight, depressed, miserable. And it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. In my mind, I think uh, what I say in the, in the fiat standard is um, government funding of science is one of those things that is, you know, like motherhood and apple pie. Like who could hate those things? It's just, you know, science is the best thing in the world. Science is amazing. And obviously we want to have the government tax rich people so that we can get science. It's just one of these no-brainer ideas. But really what it means is that you've established a monopoly on science. And what it means is that the people in charge of the funding are now isolated from all manner of real market feedback. No matter how many people your advice kills, doesn't matter. Your paycheck doesn't come from the people who are paying you, like the uh, Instagram influencers and like the gym bros who you know have to deliver results to their clients or else they don't get paid. If you're a fiat scientist, if you're uh, in uh, an American university or any university all over the world, the, the American system of uh, universities has basically uh, invaded the planet. If you're a scientist in that field, you know, you're just churning out papers. You don't care. You just want to make sure your papers flatter the people who assign the funding and the people who assign the funding, you know, that, that there's no way that they're going to change the diet heart hypothesis. They have no interest in it. I think one thing that I say in the fiat standard is fiat science is about who gets to decide what the null hypothesis is. And mm -hmm. so in 1948, the null hypothesis was that it is the diet heart hypothesis. 
And then that's it. You know, you could present mountains and mountains of evidence against it. Doesn't matter. They'll ignore it. They'll smear you. They'll uh, call you um, an industry shill. Doesn't matter. And then they'll present the most ridiculous studies, like the seven country study or, or all of these terribly designed. And, and some of the nutrition studies are just absolutely hilarious. Like you could read them if you, if you just know a little bit of statistics. Like you look at how they design it and then you look at how they interpret the result. It's just so idiotic. It's funny. But it doesn't matter. They keep churning out these studies and they could keep confirming their hypothesis and everything that contradicts the hypothesis is ignored and they can get away with it because their funding doesn't come from the market. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're saying is largely true. <laughs> it's, um, you know, who would oppose having government funding and yet it does create, I mean, it, it, it by having a single government funder, you also create a, an easier situation for in industry capture, right? So you can capture it. You, you have a focus and a target. And that's why, you know, having the WHO is so great because, it, you know, companies like Unilever don't necessarily have to go around to every country anymore. They can just focus and target. You know, there's a concentration of power that allows for greater possibility of industry capture. I will say the null hypothesis has slightly changed since Ansel Keys. Um, it is true that in 2015 for the U.S. Dietary Guidelines and a couple of years earlier for the American Heart Association, they dropped their caps on cholesterol. And they did it in this silent way so that they there was no press release, there's no announcement, nobody knows about it. They, they, they sort of tiptoed away from that. Um, but they did... Their papers actually say we can find no evidence for continuing caps on cholesterol. And that means mainly that you can eat eggs again. Eggs were the egg yolk is what you are supposed to avoid. The egg yolk is also where all the nutrients are, uh, including, you know, some ones that are critically short in the diet like choline and also nutrients that are needed for eye health. And shellfish, of course, is the other uh, was the other food that was um, that we couldn't eat due to cholesterol. Also, incredibly high in nutrients, um, like the like vitamin B twelve is is something you find in um, I think clams is the highest concentration of B twelve. Another nutrient of concern and shortage um, that many people don't get enough of. So there has been a bit of a change in the null hypothesis. There is an effort now to switch over to something called precision medicine. And it's sort of a sideways shift away by saying like everybody has individual unique diets. And that's, you know, that is something that could in incorporate low carb, although it's unlikely that it will because nobody makes any money off of, um, or few people make money off of low carb diets. But it is hilarious from a scientific perspective. I mean, if you know about what we know about nutrition, um, you know, it's like saying we're going to design precision garments for each and every one of you. Um, when your you know, your your skills in sewing, you haven't even invented the needle yet. <laughs> you know, we just don't even have the data to make clothes. In you know, if that's the parallel nutrition, much less design everybody. You know, their own specific kind of diet. I mean, everybody. There's so much individuality, and we really don't even know things at a or we know very little at a, at a basic level about how to make people healthy. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, honestly, I think um, I, I might disagree with that. I think um, 
all of our ancestors, if you go back far enough, all of our ancestors at some point ate meat only, more or less, and right. they ate plants or, or animal foods. You know, animal foods, right? Yeah, basically originally, and then and and yeah. And then they started essentially using plants as uh, ways of ingesting animal fat. So if you run out of meat, you still kept the fat and then you cooked the plants with it. And that was uh, nutrition. And that's how most cuisines come along. So I think for the vast majority of people, you know, the, the, they could get 80% of the results with very, very simple uh, rules that don't need any individuality. And I think there's a lot of um, people want to feel like they're uh, special and they're unique, and, and it's, it's. But yeah. really, you know, just quit eating everything that comes in a plastic wrapper made by a giant multinational company, and get one pound of beef a day. Like I think ninety nine percent of people would solve eighty percent of their problems if they just yeah. did that. I would say that those are pretty good percentages. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't get you all the way there. I mean, there really are stories. There are people who you know who have all kinds of strange um, issues or people who, whose metabolism has just been broken for so long. It's very, very hard for people to recover. It's hard once, you know, for, as you get older, it's like, there are many, there's a lot of, there is a lot of individuality, but you're right that you, you need to like head off in the right direction. And we know what that direction is. Yeah. Uh, my own brother uh, is, a, is a medical doctor. He's with us today. And um, him and I used to laugh at the kind of nutrition education that he uh, used to get in his medical school. Um, Ahmed uh, uh, has a question for you. Ahmed, do you want to uh, jump in? Yes. Hi. Uh, Hi. Thank you, Zekadeen. Uh, thank you, Nina. Uh, yeah, what's interesting to point out, I just, I just finished my training and finished my residency as a physician. And uh, what's interesting to note is just the lack of education about diet in our curricula. Which, whereas it's, it's pretty incredible how they, they tell you everything about a disease and they never mention anything about how lifestyle can lead to this disease. And what, what that has done at the bigger picture is that we don't think of disease as something related to diet. So we never ask that. Uh, about our patients and everything related to diet is done by people looking at studies and looking at ma macronutrients and, and so they've separated uh, separated the patient from and their problems from the diet two different people looking at the two issues and so that's why we, we, we get to the point where dietary recommendations just don't make any sense yeah, I mean, my my understanding is that medical education has been largely um, has shifted to reflect the interests of the pharmaceutical companies. So what they're interested in is what are the conditions for which I can prescribe a pill or a device or a procedure. And so there, and, and a doctor considers it a successful visit if he or she is able to write out something on the prescription pad and leave that can leave with the patient. That bit is a successful visit. And that is, you know, the, that's the formation of the medical education. If you go to the doctor with symptoms for which they do not have a pill or a device or something, they're like, well, I mean, yeah, <laughs> that's all I can help you with. So, um, you know, so for instance, if you go with a sleep problem, your doctor is not going to tell you about meditation or using room darkening or having a cold room. They're going to give you sleeping pills because um, that's what they're, that's what the medication is designed to do. So, I mean, it is really unfortunate that, and, and, they, and when they do talk about nutrition and they outsource it to, well, at least in the U.S., to the dietitian. So the dietitian has been trained in the American diet 
Dietitians Association was founded by a Seventh-day Adventist. So they have, like, they've been trained in this plant-based diet stuff. Um, and that's, you know, plants, grain, whole grains, fruit, vegetables, nuts, needs, and uh, <laughs> nuts and seeds. Um, so that's the advice that they're, they're going to give patients. And that's how patients are taught. And then they don't get any better. And so it's very interesting in the medical profession, what you see is they, they, they come to the belief legitimately that diet doesn't work. They're just like, I tried diet, I send all my patients to the dietitian and we give it a try first before we go for the, you know, the procedure or whatever, but diet never works. And that's because the dietitians are prescribing the wrong diet. But it's, it creates this sense among, in the medical profession that diets just don't work. Yeah, it's consistent with their observations. Uh, Ahmed, can you can you tell us uh, what was uh, what they taught you about diabetes and diet in medical school? I don't remember the details, but could you remind us? Yeah, so everything I all the dietary teaching that I got in four years of medical school was this one lecture that was forty five minutes, and all they taught us was how to how many units of insulin do you give for each each different amount of carbohydrates that you give. That's that's. That's all I ever studied. So the only chart that I saw was just, oh, if you want to eat dessert, give them that many units of insulin. If you want to eat apples, give them that many. And that's it. That's awful. It's and astonishing. You know, insulin, insulin is um, provokes weight gain, which they probably didn't tell you. So it worsens the disease because weight gain also worsens diabetes. It just sends them down this path of progressive diabetes. And so, you know, until very recently, and still in, in most of the mainstream, diabetes is considered a, a progressive disease. Like, there's just no way it can't progress. It will progress until you cut off your limbs and you have dialysis and you go blind and that's it. And so it wasn't until really the experiment by Dr. Sarah Halberg and the Verdict um, group that we even really understood that diabetes could be reversed for which they got no uh, <laughs> they got no press coverage. <laughs> Even though that is, again, the disease that is most bankrupting nations because it's a very, very expensive disease to, to treat progressively. This is, for me, I think the, the, the read exposition of just how absolutely corrupt this is. For most people, I think, in, in most people's mind, you know, the scientific process is such that if, if somebody managed to actually... Um, cause diabetes to go into remission, if they manage to get a diabetic person to go back to living normally and not have to cut off their limbs and go blind, most people have the idea that what would happen is that, you know, all of the world's scientists would drop whatever it is that they're doing and focus on this new, whatever it is, you know, technique or medicine or whatever it is. And they focus their attention on, you know, what can we learn from this case? We have an, one case of diabetes reversal. And in this world, we know uh, we have tens of thousands, probably millions of people all over the world. I mean, you look at these, um, uh, I'm part of a bunch of Facebook groups um, where, you know, I learned about all this stuff. You know, you have groups in South Africa that have hundreds of thousands of people. So there's millions all over the world that are fixing their life with all of this. And the entire scientific and medical community has exactly zero curiosity to find out what is mm -hmm. going on. Yeah. It's absolutely astonishing. Yeah. I really, I have to, I, I was at a conference in Geneva where Dr. Sarah Halberg, who's one who was the head of this large um, controlled trial on reversing diabetes using a low carb diet and a, and a, and a phone app. 
so they could have continuous immediate care um, to go because they so rapidly go off their medications. It's necessary to be monitored. Anyway, she was on a panel with three other scientists um, and she's talking about reversing diabetes and nobody, none of the other people on the panel are even curious. And I got up to say, um, I had to ask a question. I was like, I don't know if you heard that Dr. Hummer said she reversed diabetes. I understand that this may be an unconventional approach, but are you at all curious? Do you have any questions for her? I mean, it was really just, it's astonishing. It's just, it's cognitive dissonance. It's, 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 it's the fact that they, you know, everything that they have learned would be wrong. It's the knowledge in the back of their minds that all the companies that are investing in them would, um, you know, would no longer invest in them. I mean, there it was one of the people on the dietary guideline committee. I keep going back to, but his major, he's, you know, he's got connections with Nestle, but he, one of his major, um, uh, companies that he works with is, um, one of the, the big weight loss drugs. And that's, you know, you prescribe this drug for weight loss. And, um, and sure enough, when the Dietary Guideline Committee got around to reviewing the science on the low-carb diet for the first time, they actually were charged with looking for the science for the low-carb diet. Now, any of us, I'm sure any of your listeners who's been in, like even remotely connected to this way of eating, they understand that there are, there are probably over a hundred randomized controlled clinical trials on low carb. And this committee could only find one, a single one of these studies because one of the committee members was an author. And so they, they, they couldn't ignore the one study that actually a committee had member had, had been on, but there was, just, they just, they, um, you know, it's really not in their interest to find this diet. And they really, you know, it's like, I guess it's like, you know, the monkey does see it. <laughs> just do not see it. Absolutely. Um, Peter has a couple of questions for you. Peter, you want to go ahead? Yeah, sure. So, um, Nina, thanks for that. I wanted to ask a question about your view on vitamin supplements, uh, because some of the ideas that you discussed, some of the dynamics you discussed regarding nutrition science and non-mainstream views remind me a little bit of the story of Linus Pauling and his views about vitamin C. And so I wondered what your thoughts were on uh, vitamin supplements and taking uh, doses of, of vitamin C in particular. Is that something that you think that you've looked into and that you think um, can be beneficial? You know, I feel like I have not looked into that enough to be able to say anything that I feel is reliable. It seems to me that excess vitamin C is easily um, excreted out of, um, out of your system. And so there's probably no harm in taking um, vitamin C. I know that the studies that they've done looking at multivitamins have, have repeatedly failed to show any benefit from taking a multivitamin. I know that the idea is that taking vitamin E um, turned out to be uh, harmful and um, and that taking any of those the antioxidant vitamins were shown ultimately to have no effect or be harmful. So I can't say about every single vitamin supplement, um, but I know there are multiple studies showing that that getting vitamins in food is 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 more um, you absorb it better. I will also say about vitamin C is that the need for vitamin C. You know, I know people take mega doses to. Re- to prevent colds, but 
to take vitamin C is because you're not eating fruit, say. I mean, if you're having, if you have a low carb diet and and you're eating meat, you do not have the same need for um, vitamin C. I mean, it's an interesting question, like why do the Inuit um, not get scurvy, right? They're not eating citrus fruits. Um, And the answer is that if if the carbohydrate impedes your vitamin C absorption, but you can get vitamin C from animal foods and enough of it, if you are not eating carbohydrates, which inhibit the absorption of that. Does that make sense? I hope that answers your question. Yeah, I, th- I think it does. Right, Peter? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. Thank you. Yeah, it's um, these these examples, I think the historical examples of the Inuit and the Maasai uh, are also two favorite uh, examples of mine. And it's, it's another example of just the uh, complete lack of curiosity that uh, science has. You know, if... Uh, if we really did need the modern uh, pyramid or the eat my plate or whatever it's called, how did these people survive all of these uh, thousands of years in the Arctic where they couldn't grow grains and they couldn't grow fruits and yet zero curiosity about it? Nobody will uh, talk about it. There was a study done by um, uh, Wilhelm Stefansson in the 1920s. You may have heard of him. He spent a year... Yeah, he's... I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. He he spent a year uh, up there, and he then spent a year at the Bellevue Hospital in New York, um, being supervised by the doctors, eating nothing but uh, meat, and uh, his health was better at the end of the year than at the beginning of the year. And yet, it's amazing. This is an example of just you know, no amount of facts can be thrown at the fiat scientists to get them to change their mind. You know, it's you, you need you need one example you need one case to falsify a theory uh, they'll all they always dismiss it as oh well it's n equals one it's just one case well one case is enough to falsify the theory one case of diabetes remission is enough to show us that uh that there's di- diabetes is not a progressive disease that is hopeless but there's very little curiosity about any of that yeah, I mean, I write about Stefanson in my book and that story about him. It was him and another man who actually had a year-long experiment of eating nothing but meat, meat and fat. And it's really it's really interesting to read. I and mean, everybody thought, everybody was outraged at the time, even back then in the 1926, I think it was. But I, um, but I was going to say, you know, it's not just falsification via, you know, one clinical trial or, or a handful of people, case studies, or it's also, it's also just some basic common sense ideas. I mean, I live in Connecticut where for three quarters of the year, there really are no fruits and vegetables, no fresh fruits and vegetables. And you see that because we have a local farmer's market and you can see it doesn't open up until mid, you know, late June and then it closes in November. And the rest of the time, historically, you would have had no fruits and vegetables. So it's only because we have, you know, we use huge shipping containers and bring them from all over the world and get our... Um, avocados from Ecuador or wherever that we are able to um, live this way. And that's just like, that's just, that's fairly available common sense. Like you just could not have your five a day fruit and vegetables in most parts of the earth um, until, you know, until in just modern trade. And, and sorry, refrigerated, refrigerated containers is really what it took. So people, I mean, there is no, like there is, it's, it's why, you know, it's funny when we started out talking about like why it's good to have an engineer's brain. But in, in the end, you know, when I was at Stanford, I studied politics um, and 
in the end, it's it's politics. I should have studied communications. I should have in PR tactics. I mean, really, it's this field is so much more about politics than it is about science. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's uh, people didn't have access to all those fruits and they were much healthier. Like nobody draws that connection. You know, before Connecticut could get all of these avocados from Ecuador and all of these uh, grains from all over the world, people in Connecticut were much healthier. <laughs> it's, it's amazing nobody notices. Uh, Kiki has a question for you. Thank you for your book. I was a former vegetarian, so it really changed my life. Kiki, Kiki, I'm sorry, but your audio is uh, really bad. We can't really make out what you're saying. Could she write it in the chat? Okay, yeah, she'll write it. Um, okay, well, I'll, I'm going to go with Carrie's question while Kiki uh, writes it in the chat. Carrie wanted to ask you about canola oil. Um, what do you think of that? So canola, canola oil is a, it's a product of Canada and it's, um, it's rapeseed oil and, um, and it's also combined with, um, they've made it high oleic oil. Oleic is the kind of oil in, in olive oil. And it's actually probably the best kind of oil if you are going to use oil because it has only, um, it's less likely to be oxidized and, and because it only has one double bond and, and it's, I won't get into all the chemistry, but it's less likely to be oxidized. Canola is quite similar to olive oil because they have inserted this high, this component of, of it being high oleic. So it is a less, little less likely to um, oxidize. Oxida oxidation um, creates inflammation, which is one of the drivers of disease. So in general, you know, if you know chemistry and you remember in, in school doing your chemistry experiments, you have to, you know, heat up everything to make the chemistry experiment go faster. You don't want to be heating and cooking with oils in general because they have these double bonds that oxidize and that a lot happens much more quickly and much more aggressively when um, your oils are heated. So in general, I would use and it's also one of the reasons that eating out is dangerous because most restaurants use oils um, for their cooking and frying. It's far better to cook and fry with animal fats. And, um, but if you use oil for salad dressing or another cold application, olive oil is probably the best and canola is decent as well. Oh, okay. I'm wondering, um, there's uh, the promotion of uh, olive oil in, uh, in industry. Uh, there's very strong evidence to suggest that the vast majority of olive oil on the market ha is at least mixed with canola and rapeseed and soybean oil, right? Or, yeah, I, or it's, I've heard it, I'm not an expert on this, but or, or like nut oils, various kinds of nuts. And those are, so those are all polyunsaturated, multiple double bonds, much more likely to oxidize. Um, right. So when I say olive oil, you, you don't know if you're really getting olive oil. Yeah. But um, if you're doing studies of oils, just if you if you look up the word, you know, other oils, say look up oleic, O-L-E-I-C, and that is the type of fatty acid that it has only one double bond and is the least likely to oxidize. Yeah. I'm wondering how likely is it that uh, part of the push to promote olive oil is due to the fact that uh, soybean and canola and nut oil manufacturers are they they need people to buy olive oil because that's how they sell their uh, industrial waste. They mix it in. 
Um, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I think that in, you know, in this country uh, or in the U.S., I think every every country is, is a different story depending upon what their native industry is. I mean, most olive oil is not made in the United States. And so we, despite Harvard's um, promotion of the vegetar- of the Mediterranean diet, there was a kind of hard stop on promoting olive oil as part of it because there's no native, or there's very little native olive oil industry. So we need to um, promote in in our country the oils that we make, which is predominantly soybean and um, high oleic oils and safflower oil, sunflower oil. Yeah. All right. Well, Kiki, uh, you want to go ahead and ask your question? Hi, Nina. I'm so glad that you're here. And thank you for your work. I have two questions. One, I'm wondering what the focus of your group is now or your next focus now that these new guidelines have come out. And then also, can we look forward to another book from you? Yeah, those are great questions. So my group, um, I would urge you to visit nutritioncoalition.us and please um, donate because we do not, as I said, we don't take any industry money and we really are supported by um by individuals, by people um, around the world. And we're the only group in the world who is working to make the the guidelines more rigorous. The guidelines come out every five years. So there is going to be another round of them. And that's going to come up. It's going to start in about a year and a half. And in the meantime, I've been working with um, various academics, um, sort of those courageous academics that are who are kind of at the end of their careers are willing to speak out to to come up with a series of papers that are um, that we will soon be able to publish just about various aspects of the guidelines that are not um, don't reflect the science are not rigorous what are the, some problems with the methodology and the process and our hope is that due to the caliber of the science scientists who are who are authoring these papers that they actually will have um, a bit of an impact um, and we also were have been instrumental in getting a new National Academy study um, mandated by Congress uh, to review the dietary guidelines um, and to explain why they are not responding better to chronic disease. So that's been part of our work. And then um, as far as writing a new book, um, I do want to write a new book. I uh, have sort of one in the works that I'm um, thinking about um, that would really be about this question of veganism and, and, and how it's been promoted, sort of like pulling back the veil on this diet that is, you know, everybody has accepted, especially young people as being sort of the most healthy, best option. And I, I want to talk about the, what are the nutritional problems with that diet? Um, How does it affect people? And what are some of the politics? Again, it's always the politics, that are the most, um, that really have driven nutrition. And I want to explain that. So I hope you'll be interested in that topic or (laughs) give it it to the young people that you know who are all going vegan. As a former uh, vegan vegetarian for 30 years and now a carnivore, um, yes, I absolutely support a work like that. So great. Thank you for everything. And I will donate to the coalition. Thank Thank you. you. Well, Nina, this is the time where uh, I uh, I shill you Bitcoin. If you want to get donations, you should consider accepting Bitcoin because uh, a lot of Bitcoiners are going to be very receptive to your message. But also, uh, I think the long-term vision here is that uh, 
basically, Bitcoin fixes everything in the world. And this is a constant running theme in our uh, discussions here. And I think, um, you know, my argument, the, the, how it relates to diet is that, uh, you know, all of, when we were talking about all the science funding stuff, all of that comes from the fact that government has an infinite money printer that can finance all of these things without regard to market feedback. So that's how they can keep uh, telling people um, essentially murderous uh, nutrition advice for 70 years. You know, no private company could get away with that without government protection. And the reason the government is able to get away with it is because of their money printer. And Bitcoin takes that away. So uh, you'll get more donations and you'll help starve the beast that uh, has been uh, feeding people all of the stuff that has been uh, making them sick. Okay, well, um, you're going to set me up with that after this podcast. I would Absolutely. be delighted to do that. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. And there are, you know, there are remarkable similarities. I mean, I wish I could figure out what is the Bitcoin of nutrition. And I think that um, it's, really, I mean, I sort of have a, you know, two-part answer to that, which is that one is everybody's in control of their own health. So everybody can experiment on themselves. It's not like, you know, environmental pollution where we have no control over that. You have control over your own body, your own, what goes in your mouth, you can control. Um, and so we have the power of doing experiments on ourselves, which is, which is tremendous. What concerns me and is why I, care about the Nutrition Coalition is that there are so many people who are unable to, like, are, don't have this knowledge or are unable to control what they put in their mouth. I mean, all of the food programs for the kids at schools and kids breakfasts and people who are elderly and people in hospitals and people in prisons and, you know, all of that, these people really are what we call captive populations. They don't have choice. And then many people who go to their doctors, you know, they just don't understand that that is all driven by this incredibly rigid system. So um, I can't figure out <laughs> how to get around that. I mean, the government is in the little time that I sort of ventured into trying to change policy. I just, you know, realized what a tremendous titanic of a ship it is and how hard it is to change and how and how much money there is in invested in, in, in just keeping it just the way it is. Yeah, I think um, I'd argue that the uh, Bitcoin uh, equivalent in nutrition is uh, getting in touch with your local rancher and uh, getting meat from them and just ignoring everything else, ignoring all these giant supply chains that are out there making people sick with all of that money, all of the centralized food production, all the centralized dietary guidelines, I mean, that's, what, that's the equivalent of central banking, essentially. And Bitcoin is the alternative to that. Bitcoin is the yeah. decentralized alternative to that. So I think, you know, uh, getting a cow from your rancher and making sure that you're friends with your rancher because uh, ranchers and uh, the meat industry, as you know, are under a tremendous attack currently. And um, ultimately, everywhere in the world, there are people uh, growing animals. If, if you live in a society of more than 100 people, there will be somebody who's growing animals, who's grazing animals and uh, eating their meat and selling their meat. And so the answer really is for people to just get in touch with that person, um, keep buying from them directly, make sure that they can stay in business because if they can't stay in business, you know, you're uh, left to the, <laughs> the vultures of the multinational corporations to uh, feed you their poison. Yeah, I think it's true. There's a saying, pay the pharma, pay the farmer, not big pharma. 
And I, and I think, you know, this is true. These, and farmers are really under attack. I mean, especially ranchers are under attack and they, they, um, they, in every way, um, there's just terrible stories I hear all the time, um, about really, you know, in, in England, they're literally going to farms and, and, and harassing them. I mean, you know, it's really, it really is up to people like us to support our local communities. I think that's true. I mean, I still have this kind of communitarian sense that like, we do need to take care of people who, who are these captive populations. And, you know, we do have this problem where our, we don't have enough people to go to our military because we have an obesity problem. We keep missing recruiting targets. And then, so we don't have a really a functional military anymore. And that creates um, the need for, um, I guess, more drones and more remote killing. And I mean, it's just, it is a societal problem. I believe that you should fix your own health and take care of your own community. But then we, have, we do have this larger societal problem that I still, you know, I, I believe we have to somehow fix. Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, this is where this podcast is a little bit of a trap. Uh, we did the same thing with Patrick Moore when we were discussing uh, uh, carbon dioxide. And it's, um, yeah. No. <laughs> it all comes back to Bitcoin for you. <laughs> it all comes back to Bitcoin. I mean, it's uh, it's insane how, um, how how much of a monomaniac you become when you start getting into Bitcoin. When you take the orange pill, as they call it, you start seeing the res- the effects of fiat money everywhere and you start seeing how Bitcoin yeah. fixes that everywhere. Well, I do think it is a very powerful convener of independent thinkers. And, um, and people who are open to new ideas, who respond to new um, observations, people who maybe, you know, a little bit of a maverick mentality. I mean, I see that those are also the people who are able to, or, you know, to open their minds to the possibility that a different diet might be helpful to them. So I see this sort of connection and Bitcoin has created that community, which is Hopefully, I mean, ultimately, it needs to be a powerful force in the world. Um, you know, it's one of the forces that is, or one of the you know, movements that is sort of rising up against what I see as you know, increased corporatism and corporate control. Absolutely. And the difference between Bitcoin and other movements is that Bitcoin has a very, very powerful superpower and secret weapon. Well, not secret. But a very powerful weapon, which is what we like to call number go up technology. And <laughs> it basically says, um, essentially, Bitcoin is designed to go up in value. So Bitcoin, there's no way of increasing the supply. And so over time, more and more people keep hearing about Bitcoin, but the supply doesn't increase. And so the only way that more people can get into Bitcoin is if the price goes up. And so if you get into Bitcoin, you end up becoming more influential over time, end up having more resources because you're putting your wealth, you're storing it in a superior technology for uh, value storage, as opposed to people who are trying to make progress essentially while running on the treadmill of fiat money, which is constantly devaluing. So if you just hold money in your bank account, you're losing purchasing power. And if you try and do other things, you know, you need to turn into a full-time asset manager 
at the expense of your real work to try and manage to beat inflation. And then you have to pay fees and all of that stuff. And Bitcoin is just, um, it, it allows you that freedom to just put the money in that thing and not worry about the fact that in five years time, it's not going to be inflated away. It's not going to be destroyed. In five years time, it will almost certainly be worth much more than what it is worth today. And so A, it gives you more financial resources and B, it frees you up. And I think this is a very common experience among Bitcoiners that um, I, I've spoken to many Bitcoiners obviously over the years. It's just once you know that you can provide for your future self, then things become much more secure for you. And then your mind is clear and then you can use your time to build things that matter. And so I, it, it, it's a much more of a, a long-term focus on, on long-term approach to life, which is, it, it, it almost feels like you're, you're replacing people's software when they move from uh, fiat money to Bitcoin because they go from living on a treadmill, um, no mental clarity, constantly in the horror of, you know, how am I gonna be able to provide for myself five years from now into, oh, well, the future is now secure and taken care of. And let me think about me. Let me think about my career, the things that I want to build. Let me think about building things that last over time. So um, hopefully that will uh, mm. that, that will uh, get you on board. And, uh, That's a very convincing up. argument. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And it's also, it's, it's, it's also great for me to hear that the Bitcoin, I was so excited when you first reached out to me because it was exciting to hear that your community is interested in these nutrition ideas because our ideas in the world of nutrition make no money. I mean, nobody makes. Um, so in fact, medical doctors are putting themselves, you know, there's, I mean, there are plenty of people who need their help, but ultimately you, you put yourself out of business if you make people healthy. So there needs to be, I mean, exactly what you're describing, which is some other I mean, health, there has to be some way to in, invest in, in what will make people healthy without having to worry about the, the loss of, of, of basic of income that comes with that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the that problem too now. <laughs> I'm sorry? I said you've solved that problem too now. Exactly. <laughs> well, I'm delighted that uh, you're uh, being sold and I will definitely help you set up uh, your website and set up donations on your website. You. We'll be very glad to do it. And I really wish you all the best of luck with all of your amazing work. It has been uh, transformative for me personally and for many, many people all over the world. You're a hero. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. And it's really great to talk to you and your audience. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Have a good day. You too.